don't be afraid to apply it to build something because that's what I've seen. I've seen a lot of small groups, people just take an idea and just run with it. And APL really holds your hand the whole way when you need to build something amazing. Welcome to another episode of ArrayCast. I'm your host, Connor, and today with me I have my three panelists, Adam, Stephen, and Bob. Uh, we're going to go around and do brief introductions, and then we have a couple announcements, and after that we will hop into an interview with our first-time guest. And I'll start things off. Uh, I'm Bob Terrio. I am a J programmer. I am a J enthusiast, I guess, because I'm, I'm actually not employed by J. But I am working on the J wiki, and we may have some announcements coming up on that because we're making some progress, and it's wonderful. I'm Stephen Taylor. I'm an APLer from way back and currently the KX librarian. I'm Adam Botsevsky, full-time APL programmer at Dynamic Limited. And as mentioned before, my name is Connor. I'm a professional C++ developer, but uh, array language enthusiast and combinator enthusiast at large, as many of our regular listeners will know. Uh, so we will throw it to Adam for a couple of announcements, and uh, then I'll come back to me for one more. Okay, so uh, first off, the APL Seeds second installment, uh, which is a uh, kind of conference meeting get-together a day. Um, it's going to be the Tuesday, the 29th of March, and it is geared for people who are interested in uh, area programming, APL in particular, um, to get some uh, view and meet some people uh, that do APL and get some instructions to that. So that's going to be really exciting. Looking forward to that. Uh, furthermore, I have started a weekly event in the APL Orchard, uh, so the APL Orchard chat room, part of Stack Exchange. And there we take every week on Friday um, a problem from a past APL programming solving uh, problem solving competition and people submit their answers to that and then we discuss it a bit and see how we can optimize it and variations on it and it's kind of lively and then a follow up video based on people's submissions is then published in the, the week after that until the next one. So it's a really nice thing to join You can find the previous chat logs, and of course, the videos are there, and links to all of this, of course, APL seeds as well in the show notes. Awesome. And I think before I mention my announcement, it's worth noting about the Apple Seeds or APL Seeds conference. Uh, this is the second edition of it. So the first one was last year in 2021. So I think we can, sh we can throw in the show notes links to all of the recorded talks. Um, I gave a short talk there. I think Rodrigo, our guest from two episodes ago, um, also gave a talk there. And um, so, yeah, all the if you're not able to attend the conference in person, all of the talks will be recorded. And I think most of them are about 20 to 30 minutes long. So they're they're not like 90 minutes. They're they're, they're easily digestible at sort of a, a lunch if you still take those during the pandemic times. Um, and also, too, I'm not sure maybe I missed this, but uh, uh, it's worth noting again that it's a at least I think I mean, Adam will correct me. It's a completely free conference, correct? Yeah, it's free, uh, but you do need to register, and uh, the link uh, to for the registration will be in the sh either in the show notes or on the site that we'll link to. Okay, yeah. So that's it's just worth noting because a lot of even single day or two day conferences these days they'll either have a small fee or sometimes a non small fee. But um, yeah, as this is targeted at beginners, potentially if you're a listener to this podcast, you already are familiar with the languages. But if you you know know folks that are getting you know started with computer science, it's potentially worth you know sharing 
that like, hey, have you been interested in this new kind of paradigm? Because um, it's it's geared towards beginners and people that might be looking to get into the language. So I think it's a, a great sort of resource for people that are maybe new paradigm, curious, but have never sort of dipped their toes in yet. Um, with all that being said, my short announcement is that I was on the APL Farm Discord, which is a collection of all the different array languages, and recently just happened to stumble across uh, an announcement update of a site called BQNPad, which is basically like a tryapl.org, uh, but for BQN. And it is super awesome. It's got uh, uh, syntax highlighting, which the current BQN language JavaScript REPL that is hosted on sort of the documentation site that Marshall Lockbond's done. Um, they don't have syntax highlighting, so it, it's sort of just it's a nicer look. But also, too, a really cool feature that they have is they have like a preview result of the expression that you're currently building up, which I don't think exists on any of the other sort of uh, online REPLs. So while you're currently typing, typically the way you work in a REPL is you hit enter and then you get the result and then you build it up slowly. But um, in BQNPad, you can just type the expression and every single type you, time you type a character, it sort of reevaluates it. So sometimes it'll give you little error, errors while you're adding, you know, one of two symbols that you need to add to sort of get the next to the next state of your expression. But anyways, super neat. Um, I believe it's being developed by, I might get this wrong, so I apologize, Andre Pop. So um, kudos to that individual for, um, you know, working on this. And I think, you know, this is similar to the announcement that Bob made, you know, a couple weeks ago that Jay is working on getting something like this up and running. So we'll have announcements about that in the future when that's ready to go. Um, all of that out of the way, it is now time to introduce, as I mentioned before, uh, a first-time guest, Josh David. Um, this is going to be a pretty exciting conversation with Josh. Uh, Josh was exposed to Dialog APL during an internship with the Carlyle Group, which I believe is headed by Paul Mansur. Um, he can correct me if I'm wrong, who is, I think, a pretty well-known in the APL slash array language community. Uh, he continued with APL and was a grand prize winner in the 2016 APL pro, uh, problem solving competition, which I believe means that there should be, if uh, you attended the conference, there or there should or might be a video of um, sort of going through uh, how he won the contest. And he's a recent graduate from the University of Scranton with a degree in computer science, and he now primarily serves as an APL consultant to North American clients and works on APL tools. So I will say uh, welcome to the podcast, Josh. And... Um, Maybe if you want to start off, uh, confirm or deny whether there is a talk that exists of you walking through how you won that contest. And if you want, feel free to, you know, jump back to, you know, how you started in computer science slash how you, you know, um, ended up in the APL slash array language world. Yeah, thanks, Connor. There is a talk that, uh, on YouTube for my presentation for, for the problem solving contest. So maybe we could put a link for that somewhere. But yeah, so thanks for inviting me on. It's really exciting. It's really exciting to see you and Bob and other panelists put in the effort to produce these podcasts. It's kind of like a new revolution of information. You know, we had books and now podcasts are just exploding. Really interesting and happy to be a part of one. So my name is yeah Josh David, 24 years old, and I write APL code for a living. I was born and raised in Scranton, Pennsylvania. So I don't. You might have some listeners who are familiar with the the sitcom The Office. That's the city and where it's based from. And yeah, it's a real place. So <laughs> there's actually quite a bit of history in that city with APL. So the last APL conference, well, wasn't exclusively an APL conference. It was all array languages of the millennia in 1999 was held in Scranton, PA. There were a couple of J presentations as well there. 
And Ken Iverson himself was at this conference. Um, so I was only two years old at the time, so I didn't attend it. Not all of us have a track record of showing up to conferences at the age of one. Like <laughs> so, yeah. Um, but it was at this conference was held at the University of Scranton. And it was one of the organizers was Dr. Stephen Monsoor. So he taught statistics there. And actually, his brother was my neighbor, Paul Monsoor growing up. Oh, wow. So that was how I got introduced to APL at a young age. He was actually my neighbor, and he's well known in the APL community. He has his own small company that has, you know, less than a handful of APL developers managed to create an industry standard software for the for financial managers. So that was my first introduction, and I got to do some internships with him over this, over the, my summer breaks in high school. And that was my introduction to APL. And I always knew I wanted to get into programming at a young age because I really liked building things and seeing a tangible result. So, you know, from Legos as a kid to, it just, ha it just gives you this freedom to kind of do what you want. You have an idea in your head and then I want to express that to the computer and, you know, get an executable or something that has that, the, the full stack. And so then I continued looking into other programming languages as well. High school, I attended a computer club where in the introduction class, I remember the first one, we were learning about Java. It was probably going over a Hello World program or something. And then I remember seeing the words public static void main and my first question to the instructor was, well, what is that? Why do we need it? What does it mean? And the response I got was, oh, well, just ignore that. We just need that all the time. and You don't have to pay attention to it. And that kind of didn't sit right with me. And, you know, having experienced APL before this, um, that was kind of kind of left a bad taste in my mouth. But I continued to explore it and then went on into college to get my bachelor's in computer science and do some internships with other companies that, you know, don't use APL. So just traditional Java-like languages and so on. And then, yeah, as you mentioned, I, I participated in the problem-solving competitions and got second place. And then in 2015, and then the next year, I got the grand prize in the general computing category. So that I really got more involved with the APL community at the conferences. And then by the time I graduated, my plan was, you know, take the traditional CS approach of uh, pick up cracking the coding interview book, <laughs> practice some leak code problems. And I was headed that way. And then I decided to reach out to the, the APL community again, see if there was any openings. And sure enough, they were starting a consulting business for North American clients. And I decided to hop in on that. And that's what I've been doing since I graduated about a little less than three years ago. And from then, I've been programming and writing APL and production environments as my nine to five job. Wow. So that's pretty crazy um, that you just had a neighbor that was sort of a prolific individual. And that's your, I feel like that, you know, what percentage of 
people had a parent like Adam or a neighbor like Josh or just like the proximity to someone who was sort of a uh, and Stephen, do you also have a, what was your, you raised your hand, do you have an origin story that you, you uh, you know, your basement suite or something? Okay, well, I actually got a, uh, a question for Josh here. I've got huge respect for Paul Mansour as a, an application developer. And I'm wondering, it's too general a question to ask, what did Paul teach you? It's like, well, probably <laughs> the answer to that seems like everything. <laughs> But I'm guessing that in teaching you APL, he probably insisted on certain ways of writing and made a, made a point of it because he's a very thoughtful principal developer. And I wonder if you could share any of what you consider the main lessons that Paul taught you. Yeah, that's a good question. And actually, you're right on with that uh, assessment there. He's very big on... Um, coding styles, which is probably one of the biggest things I've learned there. And he actually, he has recommended ways to write APL programs in these production environments. Um, it's on his, there's um, the Dato GitHub repository in the wiki. There's a link on that. And there's a lot of principles taken from the clean code book, which is famous in programming circles. So that was one thing, because traditionally APLers, and I see this a lot too, the traditional APLer is not a programmer, so they don't have a lot of, it's kind of the double-edged sword of APL. You have your, one of the strengths of it is that you have the subject matter expert, the domain expert, you know, someone who's not a programmer, maybe a chemist or, or you know, an actuary writing code so they're not familiar with some programming principles and then it can you know you can fall into technical debt of having harder to maintain code so having these principles in apl it's somewhat unorthodox because apl lets you do whatever you want and some of these principles in particular when i got a what what one i like in particular is keeping functions at the same level of abstraction. And if one thing is, if your code needs comments, it's not clear enough, your function name should be clearly defined to say exactly you know, what it does. So this way, even if your, your code's not clear inside the function, someone could easily rewrite it because your functions are very small too, which is helpful too in source code environments when you, you, know, you avoid merge conflicts and so on. But having function at the same level of abstraction, so it's either mostly English, which is calls to other functions, sort of a functional approach, or it's mostly APL. And the other style is using defunds. You know, the advantages of defunds is two of the hardest, he says, two of the hardest problems in programming is naming your variables. You know, that's one of the hardest problems. So two of them are solved for you. You have alpha and omega left and right argument, you know, that that's taken care of. You don't need to worry about that. And then the other interesting thing is alpha and omega, they're very short symbols. I used to write longer variable names, but the idea that he has is you keep short one letter variable names. If your function's small enough, it's within scope and it's should be clear. And the other magical thing about that is you get to see the 
relationships between primitive functions more clearly, you know, because the APL symbols are very short. So you could kind of get a very large scale uh, view of the function, what's going on when you do that. So I've started to uh, come back to that style of, you know, making sure your code is more broken up, modular and short. I mean, there's a whole lot to this. You know, the other thing is it was very big on testing. That was a big part of my job, making sure you have proper tests for everything. And it's kind of, it has lasting effects on you when you when you try to do software testing. You're always thinking about edge cases of things and making sure things go, you know. But that's also a very important part of software development that the traditional APLer is not really expected to behave or participate in. So I was very happy to have that kind of foundation for learning about creating APL systems. I have like, I don't know, 100, 100 questions. That's actually an order of magnitude less than the usual number of questions I have. So that's actually not good. I have a thousand questions, like always, um, <laughs> because I'm I'm also here. And maybe it's it's right now I'm like split between clearly we have to have or try and get at least Paul uh, uh, Monster. Is it Monster or Mansur? Monster, Sally. Yeah. Monsoor. Um We should clearly have Paul on mm -hmm. the podcast um, to talk about the Carlisle group because they actually have, a, like you mentioned, the GitHub repo. And I think actually Adam has mentioned this maybe in um, one of the dialogue webinars that happened recently. It might have come up um, about one of their sort of APL to Excel or vice versa or some sort of format to APL and back and forth. But it looks like they have a bunch of stuff. So you mentioned uh, Dado, D-A-D-O. And it has a ton of APL stuff. It looks like there's also like a practical APL introduction to APL course. Um, so clearly there, and everything is like 100% APL. Um, I guess because we will have Paul in the future, it's probably best to save most of those questions for him. But um, do, do you mind giving like a brief summary? Because you mentioned that he was building, it looked, it sounded like their, their small company was building software tools for financial managers. Like, you know, do you know how that business sort of started and, and, um, so do they, do they, are, is it sort of consulting on a one-off basis or are they building software that, you know, um, the clients or managers are, are, are purchasing or, or do you know much about that? Yeah. So maybe he could explain the origins of that, but, uh, it just, the, the software, their, their primary flagship software is the collateral analysis of CAS. It's known as CAS and is used across pretty much all these major banks across the world use it to do some analysis and reporting. Um, he also has another product, which I worked on called FlipDB, which is a relational database management system and also entirely written in APL. So his applications, that's the other thing. His applications are entirely pretty much backend, frontend APL. And which is why having this experience and other experience too, it kind of drives me nuts when I hear people say, oh, APL, yeah, you could write snazzy one-liners with it, but you know you can't write production code with it. So, with my experience growing up, and I, I see this work, and I've seen people, very small teams, blow the competition out of the water just with pure APL. Um, and I, yeah, you, there's a difference between these one-liners and production quality code, but you probably shouldn't be doing the latter without the without understanding the former. And there's some nuance to that I could get into, but to go back to your question, uh, yeah, I'm really happy that 
you know, with this, there's been a sort of a push recently, really spearheaded. I can't think of too many other APL companies that are doing this open source library uh, push as much as they have. They have very useful libraries that I use in my day-to-day work. I got to do a presentation on Dato, Dialog APL Development Operations, which is an interesting name too, because Dato is actually an architectural piece on a wall. It's the base of a on the base of a wall. So it kind of, the idea is to base your APL applications on a solid foundation, which is an interesting, a whole interesting uh, topic to discuss is workflow and dialogue APL. And um, especially with, now we have things like Git, these are very powerful tools. And the whole idea of APL is to have, is um, a tool of thought to express, express your ideas at the speed of thought. And it's hard to do that now with the modern constraints like um, version control, how do I version an application, things like this that just or go back to the, so his library goes back to the core of, I want to w- work in APL fast. I don't want to have to deal about that. I want my framework to take care of things like that. So these kind of discussions are things that you have to start having when you start using APL and production environments that, you know, if you're just solving uh, a code golf challenge, you don't really care about this, but <laughs> there's layers to it. Um, so I think we should definitely hop back to um, the one-liners versus production code, but I know, Bob, you had, I think, wanted to ask a question. Yeah, it was kind of related to that because as a, an APL programmer, you do have a different time frame, I suppose, when you're when you're working on a problem compared to most of the other programmers who might be working in other languages. How do you interact within a a larger venue. How do you interact with other programmers who might be working on a vastly different timescale than you are? So by timescale, do you mean deadlines or? Uh, just the speed at which you can refactor oh, okay. and change your code <laughs> and change your ideas. And um, I, yeah. when I was going to school, I, I heard stories of people who were sent out to work in a, you know, for a company and they were given an assignment and then they came back a half hour later and they were told, well, next time, just take a couple of days okay because this isn't working for us <laughs> yeah that's true um it's interesting yeah working in other companies where apl isn't the isn't the only language that's used um but you can uh, you definitely ha- me having been on the other side of the circle too as a java programmer pr- primarily um I've developed in other languages too. And even in college, when I would develop solutions, when I had to have problems, the first solution that would come to me was the array solution. So I would solve it in APL and then figure out how to write this in Java. So I started doing that a lot. And then eventually I realized I'll just cut the middleman and just write an APL, which is nice. The nice thing about working in the in production environments, well, there's a there's an asterisk there that people don't care what language you use. They just want to see the job get done. Ideally, that's how it should be. You know, you for a class, you might be required to submit a solution in a certain language, but in the real world, results are what matters. And you even see this a little bit with advent of code. It was it's kind of nice to see the advent of code. Some of the in the leaderboards, you, you'll see some APL solutions. Jay Fode used to be the CTO of Dialog. And he has some very nice repositories on GitHub showing him his solutions to these problems in APL. But 
Yeah, I mean, there's definitely an advantage in using APL, especially Dialogue APL in particular. There's a lot to it that you don't appreciate until you have a problem to solve, like interacting with the environment, whether it be database interactivity, reading reading from Excel, controlling Excel, all these things. You could just get data in, especially when the requirements change. It's very the having the REPL to interactively debug code and you know just that playground there and it really gets into the whole idea of the array oriented program uh paradigm itself it's not just apl it's it's um if i could say this without being put into a mental asylum <laughs> it's uh kind of the, the the language itself kind of guides you or speaks a solution to you before you even get there so that I think that's really an important part of solving problems in APL too. It's not just the the speed at which you could do things and interact with the environment. It's that you come and look at problems in a different way that people in other languages might not see the problem. Which is why, um, so for some of these companies, I'm I'm not even allowed to name them because APL gives them such a competitive advantage. They don't want that to to be out there, and it's really I've seen it create. There's applications where I've seen it create billion-dollar breakthroughs in a field just because of they structured their problem using an array-oriented style of thinking, and APL helped them to do that. Even now, they're not some of these developers are not obligated to use APL. They they can use Python or other languages. But my last meeting I had, I met a, I met someone who mentioned that you know using these other languages is is fine, but there's nothing like just a jot dot expression in APL. And for some of these uh, more, when you get into these, the way APL handles structures, you know, with rank and depth, it's very, very hard to recreate that in, in another language and to deal with it in an orthogonal way, which I could talk about more, but I feel like I'm opening too many topics. So I'll pause. Let me just jump in there for the listeners. And uh, what Josh is saying, a jot dot expression, uh, that's the auto product, which is kind of like a double for loop or double map, if you want. Uh, it's taking everything from one set of values and combining in every possible combination with everything from another set of values. And uh, even though it's obviously uh, has high complexity, but if that's what your test requires, it's really neat to be able to do that in. APL and Jay has a similar thing. Yeah, fun fun fact is, uh, was it? I think it was the very first episode of my other podcast, ADSP. My co-host and I we talk about algorithms and finish by talking about our favorite algorithm. And most people up till then, if you watch my talks and stuff, um, know that I love inner product or what's known as transform reduce or map fold in certain different languages which exists in APL as a primitive. Um, but that was my favorite algorithm up until I discovered outer product. Um, and I absolutely just love, like there's a problem, like a leak code problem that's like given a string of LURDs, which stand for left, right, up, down, um, figure out if you end up where you started, which is just a matter of tabulating how many lefts, ups, rights, and downs are there, and basically checking are the lefts and rights equal and the ups and downs. And you can do this kind of trick where you use an outer product where the left 
thing is a, a string of four characters, L-U-R-D. And uh, the write argument is just your input string. And uh, you can do basically like a, an equals, and it'll generate like a four-row matrix where each row corresponds to the L's, the R's, the U's, and the D's. And then you can just do a plus sum on that matrix, and you immediately get the counts of the L's, the U's, the R's, and the D's. And like in any language, except for maybe like languages like Python that have like a counter thing, um, you need to call like four different countifs or like four different counts. And it's just like so noisy. And in APL, you can do it in like literally like, you know, six characters or eight characters or something. So anyways, yes, outer product, jot dot is amazing. Uh, it's my one of my favorite. I'm is it still my favorite. Who knows? But it's it's definitely it's very beautiful. We'll we'll link to some docs somehow for those that want to check it out. And Haskell also has it. There's very few languages that have it. But Haskell does have an outer product algorithm if, if you are a Haskell programmer listening. Marshall Lockbaum did a whole introduction at LambdaConf uh, to APL, introduction to APL, all based around the outer product. Oh, yeah. I've seen that talk. That's a very good talk. Um, yeah. yeah, we can link that as well. And now that you mentioned the inner product, outer product as your favorites, um, they were actually originally seen as kind of the same thing. That's why they use the same symbol in APL. And like a, the, the outer product was seen as kind of like a downgraded version of the inner product. It's like the it uh, the inner product is a, is a series of reductions over the outer product. So the outer product is like a partial result towards the inner product. Interesting. Um, and eventually Iverson even generalized the outer product more as the, he called it the tie op, uh, operator or adverb where um, where you choose how many axes are being combined, or how many axes are being withheld from making all the combinations. So by default, it's the zero. So you combine everything, but you could also withhold certain axes like that. Um, uh, Stephen? Josh, you referred to a couple of roles now for the APL programmer, which may be unlike um, most people's experience of coding. So the first, the first one's fairly familiar within the APL community, and that's the gun developer, the guy who will solve the problem faster with less code and will be running, running more efficiently than people working in the other brand X technology. I'll be around the corner on the, my second beer by the time you finish. The other role uh, you referred to is um, people coding. Uh, coding not being their main thing. They've got domain expertise, and they can use APL to translate that into software. And, of course, that's that's a role in which you don't learn a lot of computer science stuff. You're, not, you're maybe not particularly into algorithms except the particular algorithm you might need for your domain. You don't know a lot about DevOps and administering stuff and organizing code and so forth. You refer particularly to actuaries. I worked for years with an actuary who's done 20 years or more of developing an APL application and has learned what he needs to know. Um, and so I guess my role in that was of a professional APL developer who can show him, well, was a day anyway, new techniques and can introduce him to uh, other technologies, 
things that are going on outside the APL world. Uh, that's something which, if you're a Java developer, as far as I know, that doesn't happen. Your interaction with the guy with the domain expertise comes in the form of specifications. So, as far as I know, I'm not a Java developer or a C sharp developer or a C developer. As far as I know, you're sitting in a room with a bunch of other developers. I wonder, Josh, what's been your experience of supporting other APL programmers as a as a professional programmer in that way? Yeah, that's that 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 is a big distinction between APL versus other languages. There's kind of now this push uh, in IT organizations to silo out the application into very distinct parts. So you have a UX team, you have a UI team, you have um, you know other people, and you take persona interviews of them and try to figure out what the what the end user wants and you know that's every time you introduce a step away from what the client wants you have this sort of entropy and you lose information that way there's always a loss of stuff so that's why i think it is important for when you when you see an apl or develop an application as the subject matter expert they're they're the best person to know exactly how the user interface should flow exactly how the user experience should be where this button should be and if you think about it a lot of ui development is math based which i think is another reason why apl was good at this because math is it's very easy to do math in apl <laughs> and so yeah i mean i re i respect these other languages too i know uh, i have a lot of friends who develop in these other languages but personally i can't keep up with uh all the changing frameworks that you know there's always a new one to learn and um so re i respect those who who can juggle all those different frameworks and everything but to me i just want to focus on the problem more and that's why um you know i just prefer to solve problems in apl Paul Mansour did a conference presentation years ago. I missed it, and I always wanted to catch up with him about it. I think the title of his presentation was something like why my mother has a particular plate, a special plate for serving corn on a cob, and I don't. And I, and I understood that the subject core of his talk was very much what you've been talking about today, about using APL as his only stack for doing everything. And I'm re remembering now that in our last episode, Morton Cromberg called his, his, yeah, basically he called APL as Luddites. Uh, what I understood it to mean by that was that uh, we're not um, chasing after every new technology. We're not hmm, chasing after is probably not the word I want. We're not spending a lot of time staying up to date. We've got a good language and we want to do as much as we can within it. So from his experience as an APL vendor, um, he's got users who um, wait very much for the APL vendor to provide access to the new technology and explain how everything can be done in a purely APL way. So with my huge respect for Paul, I'm kind of um, very interested in how he's been able to 
able to pursue this single a single stack development. Yeah, and it's interesting now because we're seeing a, a sort of shift, not a shift, but a new development in this front with um, people have been trying to come up with HTML solutions in APL for a while. And that's one of his latest projects called Abacus is figuring out how to, because how to control an HTML front end from APL. And there, there's a lot of interesting things there. But, you know, I, we are going to be reaching out to, we're not going to try to reinvent the wheel on HTML. It does a very good job at rendering things, CSS. So now the idea is, yeah, part of the APL's programming stack is going to have to, you're, you're going to have to know some CSS. You're going to have to know a little bit of that. But uh, the important thing is doing the callbacks. The job, Instead of writing JavaScript, it would be better to have APL handle your user input, do your calculations. So that's the goal with with the Abacus library. And it's uh, it's still developing, and it's interesting to be a part of and see how that turns out. I sort of want to jump back to, at one point, um, you mentioned the difference. I guess it sort of ties into what we were just talking about is production code. But you said that you know you could dive a little bit deeper on writing production code versus writing one-liners. And I think you said you know you can't do one with the other. Yeah. I can't remember which one you said <laughs> was there. But do you want to you know delve into that a little bit? Because I, I definitely know that I get a lot of questions um, from you know the social media verse of you know me posting one-liners and doing videos of you know one-liner solutions because those to be honest it's the easiest 10 minute videos to make is a leak code problem that is solvable in four characters and first you show a couple a python a haskell or whatever and then you go boom you know and uh it's it's uh and then everyone says okay that's pretty cool but like can you write like a non-trivial application and like you know i bet that's a lot more painful as soon as you have to do io and stuff so yeah feel free to share your thoughts and experience and in, in the comparison between those two yeah so when you talk about a one-liner, there's kind of different. There's a lot of different types of one-liners. You can have the the code golf one-liner, which is, you know, just for fun to see how short you can get things. But that doesn't mean you know one-liners. There's a lot of very useful ones in APL. And actually, just recently, I got to. I have an example where I had a problem I had to solve in production. It was a parsing problem, and I had to figure out the nesting levels of parentheses and roger huey has this excellent uh on, on the, the j software website jsoftware.com slash paper slash 50 that's a great introduction to what you could do with apl with 50 functions and one of them i i think this is a very inter one, interesting story is the fifth one the parenthesis nesting he talks about uh going to england this is Alan Perlis, the first Turing Award winner. He's in this conference in England, and Don Knuth is invited, Ken Iverson is invited, and Ken is up there showing this one-liner. And it's to do this exact problem that I had. So this is you know over 50 years ago, the same problem. And the solution was, is you, know, you take the right argument, you have a character string, and you index that into an open and a closed parentheses, which results in, you know, if we're in aisle one, one, two, or three out of bounds, which is, and then you take that and you index that into the integers one, negative one, and zero. And then to the left of that, you just do a plus scan. That's it. That's the whole solution to this problem. 
And Alan Perla saw the magic of this. And he exclaimed, he's actually sitting next to Dykstra on his right and Fritz Bauer on his left. And he, he explained, exclaimed like, wow, that like, isn't there something to this or something along those lines? And Fritz Bauer on the left says, as long as I'm alive, APL will never be used in, uh, in, I think he was in Munich, Germany. And then Dykstra chimes in, nor in Holland. So these are two. And then Perlis realized the magic of this expression. And then here I am in a production situation. I get to use this character for character as a solution, which is really cool. The cool thing about programming APL, I always think about programming being an ultimate balance of science and art. You know, there's the science to it. You got to write an optimal solution. You have to make sure, you know, run your performance test, make sure everything's performing good. And then artist, artistic, the artistic aspect is very important to me too. Your code should look beautiful. And I think Roger Huey was one of the greatest examples of this. If you look at his code he's written, and he was a big proponent of this as well. But then it also adds this kind of third dimension when you write APL code is this historical dimension that I don't think many other languages have that you could talk about. Oh, this when you when you write a line of code, there's a whole bunch of history behind it. But these are these kind of expressions, they're short and there there's a whole bunch of them. I have a Finnish book of idioms that was that was given to me of APL idioms. I don't know Finnish, but I could take a look at one of those expressions and understand exactly what it's doing and Maybe if I ever go to Finland, I'll use that as a Rosetta Stone, <laughs> figure out some expressions. <laughs> I don't know if that'll get me very far, but um... <laughs> it's funny you mentioned these this parentheses nesting. I, I mentioned in the beginning of the episode, um, you know, I have this chat event going on every week, and this very last one, uh, just this past Friday, wasn't set exactly on checking whether the parentheses were uh, properly nested. Um, balanced yeah. and this exact expression as you say character for character uh, came up as one of the solutions and uh, I'll put in the show note link to the video that I have to make this week <laughs> just about this problem yeah that's interesting because I had that last month and um, you can see how timeless these expressions are and if you bl- bloated this out into a bigger solution it wouldn't be as general and I don't think you'll have someone talking about it in 50 years that you know it serves a purpose yeah this i don't think it was the exact solution that you said but um i one time made a leak code solution video with a bunch of languages and then showed how i thought apl was the best and it was for the (laughs) maximum depth of parentheses and uh i think it had like 16 or 17 characters and i had just written it on my own and not recently but at the time i'd also been reading apl papers and trying to just consume all, all the stuff and I came across a paper from 1979 uh, called Operators where he's going through sort of scans and outer products and stuff. And he has a similar solution where he does an outer product with uh, a two-character string of the left parentheses and right parentheses and does a plus scan and then a reduction at the end. And I'm reading this and I'm like, what the hell? Like, this is the leak code problem that I just solved two months ago. And here Ken Iverson, like literally like 50, like half a century ago is like out leak coding me. Uh, and then so I made another video being like, you guys aren't going to believe this. Like I, I solved this. It was 16 characters. And his solution is like, it's like eight or 10 characters or something. And I think I'd heard uh, the similar story that Dykstra was just like, you know, it's, this is an abomination. Um, uh, uh, but like, you know, I, I don't know how you can stare at that code and not, even if you don't like the symbols and stuff, how can you, how can you 
not find that like just super beautiful. And and while I'm saying this, Stephen is ho- holding up his copy of the the Finnish uh, idiom <laughs> booklet that he has. It looks like it's actually a uh, an original because it's bound. It's not like printed off and cut up. Um, where'd you get that, Stephen? Oh my goodness! I wish I know. It's got genuine Finnish in too. All the comments are in Finnish. And I think I think there is a PDF copy online. I've seen I've seen somewhere where you can get your hands on it and. Um, there's a bunch of different great resources where like, I've always wanted to, um, there's like, I think there's another one called 40 APL idioms or something like, you know, that you must know and or very common ones. And I've always wanted to go through, cause a lot of these are written sort of decades ago without a lot of the, the newer, um, glyphs and operators that dialogue APL has added. So I'm sure some of them will be identical, but I'm sure some of them you can probably, you know, half the number of characters because you know, dialogue APL today is, you know, I don't know if it's twice or five times or 10 times as more powerful than the APL of the eighties. But, um, anyways, yeah, that's, uh, what we should throw it back to John or, or go ahead, Bob. Well, I was just going to say, do you think these, these, uh, idioms or these really short programs last so many years because it's almost like degrees of freedom when you're working with it, it's working so precisely with what you're trying to do. It would be hard to do something that didn't follow the same form especially when you've got somebody who originally you know originated the language knows exactly how it is they're more likely to use it with much more precision once you've seen that precision it's almost hard to get away from that and write obfuscated code yeah that's an interesting thing and i think that's one of the other reasons i really like the apl expressivity the thing is a lot of people talk about type systems and how APL, you know, should it have a type system. Aaron Sud does a great talk on this. Um, and that's one of the, the benefits of having, you know, you don't have types, you don't need to declare things, which allows you to have a very small solution that is general across different types too. That's very important to me. I, one of the most amazing things is the, the marriage between types in APL to solve problems like the idea of there's no real real distinction between a Boolean and an integer. You can use them to, to, you could do math on them. And that, that, that really helps you when you solve problems, you look at it a different way. You know, the, the primitives are built to work across. A lot of them are built to work across some um, types. Like there's no string dot index of there's just an iota. And then you can use that on, you know, an, an array of, characters and array of integers or whatever you have um i wanted to respond to that timelessness of these small expressions i mean kind of mentioned dialogue especially having added lots of features but most of what has been added is kind of um, plumbing around interfacing with various things the core language hasn't really developed a lot because it's it's this diamond you add anything to it you subtract from it and and if we look at the core vocabulary of apl or any of the array languages really um they every primitive represents this fundamental concept of 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 transformation on arrays everything being represented by arrays and that doesn't really change much you just have to have that vocabulary and you build things up from that. So these expressions, they're timeless because people want, still want to do the same type of work in their in what they do. And this is how you express them. You 
these Lego blocks that are fundamental concepts of information transformation. You build them up like that. And even when we add a new primitive to do something that is commonly done, then it's just about taking the old expression and substituting some part of it that's now expressed more concisely or better with a new primitive, but it's still fundamentally the same algorithm. So these are in fact timeless uh, expressions. Yeah, I think, I think there's points in times where you write a piece of APL code, I find, where it's just so, there's only one way to write it. Like, or, I mean, technically there's two ways. There's the defund way, and then there's the tacit way. Um, and I always lean towards the tacit if it's, you know, less than a certain number of glyphs. But like, even, was it a couple of days ago, I was solving a leak code problem that involved, you know, checking whether one string was a prefix of another one. And there's a classic sort of idiom that uses the a top which is, you know, a first of find or first atop find. So, you know, it'll basically find anywhere that a string is a substring of it. And if you just check the first element, it'll say, well, was the string on the left, you know, a substring of the other one. But you run into problems where what if the string on the left is longer than the string on the right? Then you end up with an empty list for the result of find. So I ended up coding a, another solution that basically does a take on the second string of the with the length of the first string and if you end up in the situation where you're the, the string that you're checking if it's a prefix if that one's longer than your target string it'll just basically the, the behavior of take which i actually didn't discover for a while um, adds the default value which is a space for a string to the end of it so you end up with this basically uh once again i think in a top where you have or it's actually not in a top it only exists in BQM, but you can spell it in APL differently, which it's before, which is sort of length uh, before take. And it's sort of the flipped hook, I think, in J. And you can get it working uh, by twisting some stuff in APL. But when I saw that, I was just like, it's three, three symbols. You've got length or tally or whatever it's called, uh, and then before, and then take. And that's the thing is in like Python or C++ or Java, you could spell that or write that, you know, sort of a, a many different ways. You know, what are you calling the index on, on your, you know, your loop, you know, just there, technically it's an infinite number of solutions. Cause sure you could call it I, but you could also call it J, K, you know, any, any number of things. Whereas there's no index, there's no looping. Like there's only one sort of pure way to spell that in BQN or APL or J. And, um, it's like once you once you see that you're never going to write that mini expression any other way and there's so many of those small idioms you know once you see the average which i think is the first of the 50 functions that Roger Huey does in that paper you mentioned uh, Josh um and once you see that in sort of the fork form you're never you're never going to write average a different way or at least i don't i don't know that's the way a lot of the idioms sort of impact me like you see it once and it's like oh yeah that's clearly the best way and sort of almost the only way, the right way to do that. Um, I'm not sure if, if people have the, the same sort of impression when they see certain idioms. Bob? Well, one of the things you mentioned starting off is there's two ways to do it. One is, you know, the direct definition. The other is, is tacit. I wonder 
how is tacit regarded in industry? Like to me, it would oh yeah seem to be be good in some sense, you know, some senses. In other ways, you probably want to stay away from it because it becomes wizard work for for the rest of the programmers. Well, so there's two questions for Josh here. What does what does Josh think, and what does industry think or even maybe three what is like the carlisle group think what does josh think and and what does industry think because uh, they could all be different yeah that's that's interesting um it's funny the the first person i saw to use tacit in a production environment well a big tacit expression was this uh newer uh programmer who didn't really know much apl and then i was looking at some of his code he was doing and i noticed this very complicated tacit expression and this guy didn't know much APL. And I was like, hey, this looks like something a Dom would write. And then, <laughs> sure enough, I, co- <laughs> I copied it and I go to Apple Cart and it worked, you know, that it came up there. So thanks to a Dom, we are now starting to see it <laughs> in production. <laughs> but there, there's, a, there's a lot of different types of tacit functions, I think. Like uh, you mentioned the average one. That's my favorite tacit function is the split one. And that is one that I think just makes a lot of sense as a tacit representation. It's, you know, not equal partition, right, or same. So that that's something I, I find, I, I've used that a lot. I use that a lot in production systems. But um, I do find even not only just for tacit, like if you took a long tacit expression, would would I put that in production code? No, but I probably wouldn't even put that as a defund either. It's, it might be more, I think at a certain level, you need you shouldn't be shy of just breaking up your function into smaller parts. Um, or if you name it correctly, then I don't even have to open the function and I don't care what's in it. So if it's abstracted that way but yeah i mean tacit i don't use them that much i use defunds pretty much for everything and i mean there's even traditional apl functions which i'm i don't know if you've had much experience with them procedural functions which is another style of writing them which is probably the over 95 percent of what you'll see in production apl systems if you don't work at the carlisle group which uses defunds for everything do you run into limitations? Because I think I discovered at one point when you use defunds, you can't use. I I know I think the if control flow statements, um, and then I'm not sure if it's the looping as well. Not that I mean you're always trying to avo- avoid loops, but um, there's certain cases where I don't know. It's it's if you're trying to the classic I can think of is like the guessing game, guess a number between one and a hundred and you're just cycling through like reading in from the screen. Um, I don't think you can use that stuff in defunds to, do you find that there's limitations or basically there's a different way, anything that you can do with a trad fund, you can find a way to do with a defund. It's just spelt slightly differently. Or? Yeah. I, I think you could do everything with a, with a defund besides some stuff like nilatic functions, which I don't even know if are a good idea anyways, a function that takes no arguments. <laughs> which you, you can't do in a defund. But it, and also this is something Paul taught me is if you need a block of an if statement, if your code needs an if block, then your function's too long. It should, that should be a separate function. And you're, you know, you can do, we have um, guards in defunds to evaluate, uh, you know, Boolean expression on the left. If it's true, then something on the right. 
but I don't, I try not to even use that as much. Sometimes you have to, but, um, you know, the, the whole idea of using Booleans, the APL way of doing a conditional is, um, you know, you can take a Boolean expression and that also works as an index. You could pick a result based on that Boolean, which I think is a lot of times a nice way. The other thing is the power operator is another way to evaluate conditionals. This is one of my favorite operators because one of the things I look for in a programming language too is how orthogonal it is. And that's something that's a strong suit of APL. I think, you know, you learn one function that it could be applied to so many different operators. Like you learn plus scan and then, Oh, maybe I'll put a max here and max scan works uh, max reduction and so on. But back to the, the power operator. Yeah. I mean, the idea of raising a function to the zeroth power means you don't run this function. So you could use that as a Boolean thing, raise it to the first power, run it once, or you can raise it to the second or more and you're running the function that many times and passing in the result of the previous run in. And then, and then on top of that, there's the negative power, which I actually got to use very recently in production code doing some unit conversions which is very nice. I use tacit for that. That was probably the first time I really used tacit functions because you have to define functions tacitly to be able to use the uh, inverse operator on them. Another interesting thing about the power operator, I think Roger Huey last year had a sort of pseudo serious question about maybe what does it mean to raise a function to a fractional power? So that's not something implemented yet. I don't know, maybe <laughs> your listeners or you guys might have an interesting idea on that, but that's that's an interesting problem to think of. So it sounds like a lot of the times too then, um, the answer to, oh, can I do this a certain way is like maybe think about the problem differently and there's a, there's a better array solution to whatever problem that you're trying to, whatever solution you're trying to bend into a defund that might not look like it fits. Um, Potentially, there's a different array array solution to that that I just haven't discovered or you yeah. haven't discovered. And you know, a lot of it, Adam has showed this a lot too in some of his talks. Is you could take if you have a zero or a one, and you're not thinking of that as a boolean, you're thinking of it as you know in math, you could um, multiply that by a number to get rid of it, or you know, if it's one, you keep the number. So you could do a lot of conditional expressions just by using pure math instead of having to rely on these type of conditional statements that, you know, you get into branch prediction and then can really slow your program down. Yeah. That's a really nice pattern. The first time I saw it when usually, um, in a functional language, you'll probably, you know, filter some list before doing a reduction on it and summing things up. But in APL, you can just multiply the mask by it instead of filtering and the masks will correspond to ones being the things you want to keep and zeros you don't. So you can just zero things out basically and then sum it up. Um, and I think that actually tends to be more performant in some cases because you're not reallocating um, like an unknown sized uh, uh, array, which is which is really nice. Also, modern day processors can use vector instructions. So it doesn't actually matter for the runtime uh, for within certain limits, of course, how much data you're processing. It takes the same time to go through the processor, but branch failures, branch prediction failures, they take time. One of the other questions, not to, I feel like we're skipping around here a bit, but one of the other questions I wanted to ask is, 
Um, so you went to university and got a CS degree, but after having um, sort of discovered APL at a very young age and not only discovering it, but, you know, doing internships, I think you mentioned in high school. Um, and so you, you'd actually had an, like a non-trivial amount of experience with APL before going into uh, getting a university degree. And then while you were there, it sounds like you learned a bunch of different languages, you know, all sort of Algol or Java-like. Um, do you have anything to comment on like what, how that experience of having learned APL from a young age, how that uh, informed sort of going through university, like the whole time where you just sort of scratching your head being like, uh, it seems like we're going backwards here. Or um, were you, were you trying to convince your classmates of like, Hey, you know, try to check this out and people just looked at you or was it just something that you like was a big secret and that no one knew that you sort of had this, uh, you know, not alter ego like uh, Superman or whatever, but just like, you know, no one ever knew that you used to code in APL and the reason you were finishing your homework faster was, was unknown to people or do you, are there any, is there anything to say there? I guess? Yeah, that's, um, yeah, no, I was actually, I'm actually known as the APL guy in, in a lot of, with a lot of my classmates, class, uh, rooms, and um, the professors knew it too, and they were kind of interested. I, you know, in our programming languages course, I got to go up when we APL actually comes up in the textbook, so I get to go up and do a demonstration of it. I got to do some of my projects in APL too. If, um, but yeah, I'm happy I got to have that experience of learning, you know, more low-level languages too than APL. Uh, it makes you more thankful for it, but also you do learn some tricks in a traditional CS degree that, you know, I don't think it's always, you have to have a completely APL solution to a problem. There's a lot of kind of, it's, it's really good to go through that thing and learn about, Oh, what it, what is a, what is big O notation? How do I measure how this program's going to perform or scale? And learning these other data structures too are interesting, but at a certain point, you know, I, I don't want to, I get tired of, you know, we have to implement all the data structures at a low level, like link lists, hash maps, and so on. But I'd rather spend my time focusing on one data type, which is the array that all these data types are really built off of. So I think it's, I think it paid off more to just focus on that and just really focus on the APL set of primitives, but the CS degree, yeah, I like it. And I still use some techniques for that in programming. There's a lot of, I, I don't know if, I don't think there's a problem you can't solve in APL. If it's obviously, if it's solvable, there's some problems you just can't solve in any language, but it'd be interesting to see. I, I don't know if your listeners disagree that there are some say you can't use APL to solve a problem. Maybe email me first name at dialogue.com. And I'd like to take a look at those problems. And because there's other stuff in APL too, like we don't even talk about the idea of namespaces, which was very interesting for uh, introduced by Ron Murray. He now works on the interpreter and dialogue internally. So that concept, you could do a lot of kind of CSC tricks that you see, like in, we talked about Abacus, that library for having a virtual APL DOM to core, to represent what's going on in the HTML engine. But one of that key things is you can represent those elements as an array of namespaces. 
So you can keep track of things like having pointers to parents or other things like that. Uh, but there's a lot, you know, it doesn't all have to be a simple 2D matrix. There's a lot of different ways to represent problems. Did the uh, the CS degree uh, widening of experience, I guess is maybe the way I'd look at it, does that help when you're actually looking at a, a production problem that you can, it gives you a way to maybe look at how you might break down uh, a problem as it's presented to you and then almost use the APL as little nuggets embedded to f solve these the variety of problems that come up. You know, you've, you've sort of meta broken them down, as you say, into functions, and then the functions can be quite terse APL expressions, but the way they link together is actually maybe also related back to what you would learn in a computer science course. Yeah. Uh, yeah, I mean, problems are... When you have real-world problems, there's uh, there's all different types of them. Some of them, you know, can just be solved the whole operation at a time, array-based. Some of them, you you know, there's nothing stopping you from mix and matching these problems, you know, using some more traditional CS approaches. But then, it's it's all. That's the nice thing about dialogue is there's no. It lets you have the freedom to work with all these different paradigms you could do, take a functional approach you could take an object-oriented approach you know and i am common yeah i'm commonly mix and matching different um techniques array-based or or other ones that you might have picked up in cs class but i don't think i think that certainly helps but sometimes it it can hurt you more than it helps sometimes because if in the end, I think if you can think purely array based, that will that will give you the best result, you know, in terms of performance and efficiency too. Uh, a lot of times, you fundamentally change how the the prob problem solved, and it might be interesting to see a resurgence of this. I know now we're we're seeing the push to cloud environments where people are very cautious of how efficient or how many how many cpu cycles it takes to perform this problem because now there's a dollar amount to it so i think that that might be an interesting area where you might see apl uh, rise up again because sometimes you could just express a problem without all this boil you know when without having all this boilerplate stuff you get to see the problem more clear all right so we are a little bit over time i think but um I guess maybe, well, first I'll ask, are there any questions, final questions from the other three panelists before I co-op the last question, ultimately for myself? Um, <laughs> um, but so, and this is sort of an open-ended question, but I, I, I'm interested if there's like a question that we haven't asked or something that you want to talk about um, that it, it's just, I've, I've sort of gotten the sense throughout this, you know, uh, conversation that there's been a couple times where you said, oh, you know, we, we could definitely dive a bit deeper. And so it, se it seems like you've sort of definitely viewed opinions or formed opinions on, you know, whether it's one-liners versus production or, um, you know, taking the way you think about problems and solving problems in array languages and then, you know, using that to solve problems in uh, non-array languages like Java. Um, so I just want to, I want to make sure that there's not a question that we haven't asked or something that you want to say. Um, whether that's just with respect to APL or programming in general, because I find it, you know, super fascinating that uh, from a very young age, you sort of, you managed to discover APL 
uh, whereas I didn't really discover it until much, much later in life. Um, and you've basically turned your whole career so far. Like um, you've, you've worked at a couple different places and now you're consulting and full-time developing an APL. And from my point of view, that's like, wow, like that's like, what did, uh, what did I do differently other than not having a neighbor? Um, <laughs> like, so I'm not sure if there's like wisdom to impart or I'm sure there's a few listeners that are, you know, younger and might be thinking, oh yeah, it's, I'd love to work in, uh, you know, with APL, but uh, you know, there's w way more opportunities writing Python out there. So anyways, that was sort of a super open-ended, long-winded ramble, but um, feel free to respond uh, however, however you want to. I, I think that story that, you know, I had a neighbor who introduced me to APL just kind of shows that it's easy to get people into APL. It's easier than we think. So if, which is why I'm happy we have all this sort of uh, media work that you guys are doing and Adam is doing and Richard, that I think people just need to be introduced to it because the nice thing about it is you've really been, people don't realize that they've been learning APL their whole life without knowing it. When you take math class as a kid, you're learning it. And then when you, there's really not that much to learn to it. And it's an optimized learning. Like if you learn take by virtue of knowing that, you now know what drop does. And again, the orthogonal aspect of it, you know, things just, you can, with a small set of primitives, you can, and op operators especially, you can mix and match them in, in ways that just make sense that you'd expect. For me, I really, really like working with APL because it's basically solving puzzles all day. <laughs> so it's, it's really fun and I'm happy I get to do it. And there are opportunities out there for people who want to do APL. The people, it's a, especially our age, because you had a lot of older folks who are now near retirement who have been working on these APL systems. So, <laughs> so there's, there could be, there are openings for for this type of work and even if you don't want to i think there's a lot of smart minds i'm seeing in the orchard and all these places these young people looking at apl and i think that and don't be afraid to apply it to build something because that's what i've seen i've seen a lot of small groups people just take an idea and just run with it and apl really holds your hand the whole way when you need to build something amazing well i think that's a perfect way to end it if you want to have fun all day long solving problems and have your hand held and also not have to be confused about what public static uh, void main <laughs> means. Um, check out APL and <laughs> build a career out of it. Uh, if Josh did, I guess any, anyone can. And you don't need a neighbor, um, I think. Uh, I guess maybe time will tell. Yeah. <laughs> Watch as you know, mm -hmm. four of our next 10 guests also were neighbors with some prolific member. Then I'm just going to start to get a bit disheartened. Um, <laughs> yeah. I did figure out what public static void meant by the time I finished my uh, career. Well, there you go. <laughs> my CS career in college. So, um, Bob, you were going to say something? I was just going to add the usual, uh, if you'd like to get in touch with us, it's uh, contact at arraydickcast.com, and you can uh, send emails there, and we respond to them. We've had some really good suggestions, and uh, upcoming shows should reflect some of that, although every time we do a show, Connor seems to come up with a few new people that we really should have on, and he's absolutely right, but it does tend to expand the, 
<laughs> the list of we should have this person on or we should do this topic. But uh, still, um, that's the way you can get in touch with this contact at arraycast.com. And show notes have been mentioned throughout the show, and they are, I think, vital if you're, if you're at all interested in what we're talking about. Quite often the show notes go into much more depth and really give you an understanding about uh, some of the concepts. So uh, if you get a chance show notes and also we have transcripts of the whole thing so that uh, if that's useful to you uh, for whatever reason searches it's great you do a search on a, a topic and bang you can find the part of the uh, the uh, episode that uh, relates to it so I think that's about it uh, for me yeah I think our guest list is going to be like you know everyone's book list you know you finish one book and then unfortunately that book mentions four other books that you have to add to your list to read and um, book lists don't ever get shorter, you know, incrementally for one moment, you'll subtract one, but in aggregate, they're just constantly growing. So I'm, I'm pretty sure that's going to be the same thing with our guest list. Plus when you mentioned that we're really bringing everyone back, uh, at some point in the future. Um, yeah, it's, it's a, it's a losing battle. Um, but yeah, Josh, thank you so much for, for coming on and, um, sharing your, your story. And, uh, I think it's, it's pretty inspiring and it's also super interesting because I don't think we've really had anyone on the show talk about, uh, writing production, uh, code in APL. We sort of talked a lot about the philosophy, you know, um, you know, personal stories, but not not so much, you know, how do you go from writing one-liners and the difference between the different types, and then you know, uh, just different problems that you know all software engineers are solving. But um, this is, I think, sort of the first time I'm hearing it on this podcast, so it's it's super interesting to hear. And we'll definitely make sure to link, you know, all the talks that we mentioned about you winning your uh, APL contest. Maybe we'll have you back on. Maybe we'll have like a past contest winners at some point and we'll we'll bring a panel of all them on and uh, we'll do something special like that. And uh, we'll also make sure we get your socials so if people want to follow you that they, uh, they definitely can. So thanks uh, for coming on. And um, with that, we will say happy array programming. Happy, happy array programming. programming.